Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. This week we hear from the Warriors after they signed the troubled Kiwi 5'8", Kieran Foran. Sir Richard Hadley tells us why it's so difficult for cricket teams to win in India. Rowing star Hamish Bond says cycling is something he's always wanted to have a proper go at. And young Tauranga driver Richie Stanaway says Formula One is just far too expensive. The Warriors are confident Kieran Foran's move to the Auckland Rugby League Club will help him overcome his personal problems. The club signed the 26-year-old Kiwis 5'8 on a one-year contract. In late July, the Eels granted Foran a release from the remainder of his $5 million contract after his management confirmed he would walk away from the game to take indefinite leave. Foran joined the Eels from Manly, but managed to play just nine games due to personal issues and a season-ending shoulder injury. Warriors Chief Executive Jim Doyle told Denise Garland that Foran is not yet fully recovered. It's still a work in progress and he's certainly heading uh, in, in the right direction. Uh, and over the next few months, obviously, we would expect him to continue on there and, and obviously make a full recovery from that. But, and that's obviously a part of him coming here, changing the environment, uh, which will certainly help him on that way. How confident are you that he'll be ready to play in round one next year? Yes, no, we're pretty confident. As I say, he's uh, he's he's making good good progress at the moment, um, and therefore we're pretty confident that he'll be ready for next year. Do you or does the club see this at all as a risky signing? Obviously, he's a big name. He does come with a, a bit of a price tag, and he obviously has had his issues this year. So, do, does the Warriors accept that this is a, a bit of a risky move? I think every player you sign at the highest level like that is always a risk as to how their performance is going to be. Um, but we're confident that Kieran's, uh, I mean, I've talked to him a lot. Uh, he's a pretty special kid and uh, he's obviously uh, had a little bit of dark times recently, but, but he's working his way through that. We'll, we'll assist in that and we're very confident that he'll be uh, he'll be ready to go next year. Foreign signing obviously follows um, the, the 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 signing of the co- new coach Stephen Stephen Kearney, and on the face of it, both signings could be considered um, to be quite quite risky moves, considering both of their their history in the the NRL in, in recent years. Um, what makes you think that they are the right way forward for the Warriors going into next season? Oh, if we think they're the right people for the club, that's why we've made the decision. Um, both Stephen and Kian have got significant attributes that we think will uh, will help the club get success. That's why we've made the decision. Obviously, you, you mentioned that this is something you'll be working with the NRL for the next few weeks. Are, are you pretty confident that you'll get this deal over the line in, in a matter of weeks rather than months? No, as I say, it's a, it's a progress process that we'll work through with the NRL. Uh, we'll, we'll start that process now. We've got uh, Kieran signed a contract with us, 
uh, and we'll start that process and, and we'll make sure that uh, it'll take as long as it takes and we're comfortable with that. We'll work through that to make sure that we, we get the right outcome. In relation to Kieran Foran and um, other players w- within the club that this year have had a, a few off-field issues, is what sort of su- support is the the club putting in place for Foran and, and those other players? We, we've got we've got people who support our players. We've obviously got uh, mental skills people. We've got sports psychologists. We've got psychologists. We've got people that we've got a welfare uh, department. Uh, who spend time with all of our players and making sure that we assist them where they need any any assistance. That's Warriors boss Jim Doyle talking to Denise Garland. This is Extra Time. The young New Zealand motor racing driver Richie Stanaway took the Australian Supercar Championship by storm last weekend as he produced what was described as the drive of the day at Sandown in Melbourne. Stanaway has been driving for Aston Martin in the World Endurance Championship and joined Super Black Racing's Chris Pither at Sandown, where he drove in tricky conditions to charge through the field. The 24-year-old from Tauranga went to Europe a couple of years ago with the dream of driving F1. He did compete in GP2, but has since focused on production cars. He'll drive the endurance racing part of the Australian Supercar Series, including Bathurst, and says it's a competition he grew up following. Watching guys like Scaife and Murph growing up as a kid is kind of what inspired me to, you know, want to go down to the go kart track and get into racing. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty feels weird to be uh, to be in there now and uh, sort of seeing guys like that around the paddock and chatting to them and guys that inspired me to, to yeah go racing as a kid. Quite a change from what you've been doing this year. You're in the the FIA World Endurance Championship for Aston Martin. Uh, a lot of New Zealand fans are pretty familiar with the Aussie series, probably not so familiar with the WEC. I mean, how do you compare the sort of the, the Aston Martin you're driving there with the uh, super, Aussie supercar? Yeah, I mean, the Aston's a, a good car to drive, but uh, in some ways the supercar is, is a little more fulfilling because, uh, I don't know, it's just a bit more of a... going to drive it a bit harder than a, a, a GT car, which is what the Aston is as opposed to a touring car, which the, the supercar is. The Aston just, it's a little more, uh, I guess, a little more sterile in terms of uh, what it feels like to drive, whereas the supercar, it sort of gets your, your blood flowing a bit more. And, um, yeah, like you said, the series isn't really known. It doesn't, you know, it's not followed that well. Um, even though it's a good championship, um, you know, going to Europe was obviously all about getting to F1. And uh, that didn't happen, so if I'm not going to race in F1, then I'd rather race in <laughs> supercars, which is obviously another, what I see as a, a mainstream championship. So uh, it's good to have had the opportunity to jump in this year for the endurance races. And uh, after already having one race weekend, it's enough for me to sort of realise that it's something I'd love to do full-time in the future. Is it, just, is it just a case of opportunity, Richie, or do you actually have to come up with money? Yeah, that's the thing. It's not a professional... Underneath F1, it's... Well, basically half the F1 field and GP2, it's not what I would class as, you know, professional because the drivers are paying to be there, which is, you know, it's... Whereas opposed to racing in, um, with Aston Martin in the World Endurance Championship or a lot of guys in V8 supercars or, you know, they're all racing as professionals where they're, they're hired and paid a salary, um which is obviously more attractive than um, trying to get into a, a good car in GP2 where the drivers are paying to do that. Um, 
And then even if you do, say, for example, win the championship in GP2, I mean, a lot of F1 teams don't even really take the, take it that seriously and they want you to bring money to their team. And what, they, sort of, what sort of, if, okay, to get into sort of like a medium or lower tier Formula 1 team, what sort of money do you have to sort of be waving in front of their nose to get interest, for them to get interested? Um, yeah, it's it's a lot, you know. It's Guys are paying 5 or $10 million to jump into a, a car that can't even get on the podium, you know. It's like, I don't really see the point in that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, or well, not if it's your own money, no. Yeah, I mean, I think like 20 years ago, you could be sort of a good up-and-coming driver and all the teams were really well-funded and they'd have a test team running you know, a couple of days a week at a test track and they could invite a young driver along and if you did a good job, but it's sort of a lot more often the case where if they saw someone that was talented, they'd just be able to offer them a drive where they're straight away paid and you know, obviously go into F1 as a professional driver. Uh, but those opportunities now are few and far between, you know, if, if they exist at all. So that's why, like, I've sort of, in the last sort of 24 months, slowly, like, just sort of stopped following F1 more and more and just lost interest in it, really. Um, it's just, yeah, just the way it is at the moment. It might come back, have another, you know, everything goes in cycles and F1 might come back and, Another, another five or ten years and um, be a better place for, for young drivers coming up into the series, but at the moment it's certainly not that. Richie Stanaway talking to our motorsport reporter, Hugh Barlow. The New Zealand cricketers have started their test series in India with history definitely not on their side. The two teams first met in Hyderabad in 1955 and since then New Zealand has only won two tests in India. In 1969, the top order of Graham Dowling, Bruce Murray, Bevan Congdon, Glenn Turner and Mark Burgess with the bat and Hedley Howarth with the ball helped New Zealand to a 167-run victory in Nagpur. Then in 1988, Richard Hadley took 10 wickets and John Bracewell 8 as New Zealand won in Bombay by 136 runs. It was during that series, which New Zealand lost 2-1, that Hadley became the greatest test wicket-taker. I spoke with Sir Richard earlier this week and asked him why it was so hard to win in Indian conditions. Uh, in fact, quite oppressive, particularly with the heat and humidity. Uh, you're constantly sweating. Uh, you've got wet clothes, so those sort of things don't help. Uh, certainly when you're batting, it's difficult to concentrate when you're dripping wet all the time. But just looking at the pitches that uh, you're going to play on, uh, we tend to struggle with um, facing quality spin bowlers, so we're going to be exposed to that. The new ball doesn't last very long, so the swing bowlers are not going to get a great deal of assistance. And we're playing against the quality opposition. You know, they're conditioned so well and are very difficult to beat in those conditions. So, uh, quite frankly, we're up against it. So uh, anything that the boys can do positively and somehow secure a win will be a magnificent achievement. Yeah, uh, that's perhaps one of the good things about cricket, in a way, is that uh, sides play to their conditions and um, it perhaps gives the home side an advantage, but that's some uniqueness, in a way. Well, that's historical. Uh, Of course, you're going to have conditions um, 
that favour you because you're going to play on them a lot of times. And uh, the test for uh, any sports person, for that matter, is to perform on uh, on foreign soil, uh, foreign soil, and any sport. And uh, you've got to be good enough in a professional environment to uh, be able to adapt to those foreign conditions. And uh, that may require. Uh, technical changes, uh, tactical changes, and uh, certainly attitude changes to, uh, to be able to combat uh, the difficulties that you're going to face. So that's uh, one of the great mysteries and great challenges of sport, I think. Uh, from a cricketing point of view, we were used to playing uh, in New Zealand and English-type conditions. We find Australia pretty tough uh, to play in, and uh, certainly subcontinent uh, conditions are um, uh, perhaps the greatest challenge, I think, for our cricketers. Your recollections of that test uh, or that day when you became the highest wicket-taker in Test cricket? Well, that uh, test match uh, was Bangalore, actually. Uh, we uh, we happened to lose that match, but the one at the Wankhede Stadium in uh, Mumbai or Bom- uh, Bombay uh, was the one that uh, we won. Uh, it was a very good uh, result for us, obviously. It was a very good victory against, again, a very good uh, Indian side. Uh, yes, I did get a few wickets in that match, but I think it was John Bracewell was the one that um, certainly uh, figured prominently in that match. I think he might have got um, eight or nine wickets in that particular game. But overall, it was a very good team effort, but uh, we went on, I think, to lose the series. Did you ever think, or would you ever think, that it had been since that 88 series was the last time New Zealand's had success there? Uh, well, uh, I know it's always been difficult to win uh, in India. I didn't realise that we were the last because uh, clearly uh, the years have gone on. I would have thought other teams may have gone over there and snuck a victory somewhere along the line. But uh, the fact that we won in 69, as I say, for the first time, and then again in 88, two victories in uh, however many test matches. I think we might have played 30 or 40 test matches uh, in India. That um, results are, uh, are very tough to come by. That's Sir Richard Hadley. And this is extra time. The Olympic and world rowing champion Hamish Bond will swap boat for bike when he competes in next month's tour of Southland. Bond will ride in the same team as his brother Alistair and New Zealand professional cyclist Michael Torkler. It won't be the first time Bond has competed in the race. He finished 68th on general classification in 2009 when he was part of the Zookeepers Cycle Surgery team, which won team honours and helped Heath Blackgrove to win the yellow jersey. I caught up with Bond and asked him how a rower that bikes a bit can ride an elite tour. We're in good shape coming off the back of the Olympics. We do, as you, as you said, do a fair bit of training uh, on the bike for rowing. Uh, people don't really realise rowing is predominantly a leg-driven sport. I mean, there's an arbitrary measure where well, people say rowing 70% legs, 20% back, 10% arms. So in terms of cross-training, cycling's probably the most... Um, similar sport to rowing. I mean, obviously you have your cardiovascular system and, and, and then your legs and, and that's pretty much it in cycling and, and that's a lot of it in rowing as well. But also competing in a premier cycling event, I mean, there must be more to it than just having trained reasonably well, you know, tactics and all those sorts of things and, uh, you know, how do you sort of uh, translate that into actually competing in a seven-stage event? ambitions in terms of what we're going to achieve. I mean, we're not necessarily going out there to win the whole race. Um, If we can have some sort of impact in some way, maybe stamp our our footprint on the race in some way, then that would be a success. It's really just for us about an opportunity. And uh, I've always enjoyed cycling. 
Um, I've always been curious to to see what I could do if I gave it a decent um, a decent attempt for a couple of months. And in the past, when I've raced on the bike, I you know tried to mix it with my rowing training, and, and that's worked okay. But for this year's tour, I, I intend to I guess give it my full attention. Was there a stage when you were younger that there was to be a choice between rowing and cycling? Was there? No, I didn't discover cycling until after uh, until uh, through rowing. So once I made the senior elite team um, back in 2006, our coach at the time uh, suggested, you know, we we all uh, find ourselves a road bike because we'd be doing a little bit of training and 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 also commuting to training on the bike. So that was really where it started for me, and I, I found. Being on the smaller side for a rower, I was probably, uh, I mean, I had the best car to weight in terms of a rower, and, and that translated well to cycling. So in terms of a rower with cycling ability, I'm not probably up near the top, but we're, it's just uh, be interesting to see where I measure up, I guess, in terms of actual cyclists. So you obviously, as you say, you enjoy cycling. I mean, in Rio... Did you watch George Bennett in the road race there and think, man, I'd like to go out there and help him? Oh, look, I mean, I'm realistic. Um, that race, you know, up and down, an elite road race like that, I mean, George is, what's probably not much over 60 kilos dripping wet. When I'm at race, race rowing weight, I'm just under or about 90 kilos. So you need a lot more power to get 90 kilos over those mountains than you do 60 kilos. So to be competitive at an elite level, I probably would just struggle in terms of pure body size. But there are things that I can um, I can do on the bike, and um, I guess it's about discovering yeah what I'm what I'm capable of. I mean that's that's one of the big reasons that I row is to um, to see what I'm capable of and, and to see what uh, I guess my body and my mind are capable of and. And this is just an extension of that in some ways. Are you uh, not hurrying to make decisions about your rowing future? No, I mean, I've got ideas, but um, I guess the nature of rowing being a team sport, unless you go into the single, those ideas are somewhat dependent on other people. So it's not just me that needs to come up and, and, and make my mind. You know, there's a number of other old heads that are, are perhaps pushing the years. Um, I guess Eric and Mahe are, are well into their 30s now. And um, you know, both got young families. Um, there's there's other people to consider for them as well. So I think once you get older, you sort of start to realise that there's no hurry in terms of making those decisions. Tokyo is four years away. It's a long time. There's um, there's no real urgency. And and whatever we do, we just have to make sure that we're doing it for the right reasons. That's the biggest the biggest key. Uh, if you're if you're just there uh, because you can or somebody else thinks you should be or you think you should be um, then that's not good enough you have to be excited and motivated and and really yeah I guess excited about what you're doing because if you're not then you're not going to get the results you're going to come up short because you you, inevitably you'll start cutting those corners and and unfortunately cut corners lead to uh, lead to losses. Good luck to Hamish Bond. The Black Sticks veteran goalkeeper Kyle Pontifex has announced his retirement from international hockey 15 years after making his debut for the team. During that time, he played at three Olympic Games, two Commonwealth Games and two World Cups. And despite taking a three-year break from the international scene after the 2012 London Olympics, he notched up 176 appearances for the New Zealand side. 
Pontifex says he's seen plenty of changes in the sport over his career, with the move from wooden sticks to carbon having a major impact on his personal game as a goalie. He told Denise Garland there's no one reason behind his decision to retire from the international game. First of all being that it's the end of an Olympic cycle and it's probably time for Hockey New Zealand to look at other goalkeeping options. And also for me, sort of it's unrealistic to consider continuing on through to the next Olympics. So that plays a part in it. But at the same time, it's, it's quite an easy decision, you know. I've been in the game for a long time and uh, it takes up a lot of time and a, and a lot of effort. And at this stage of my life, that time could be spent uh, with my family and that starts to weigh on the mind a bit. Obviously, it has been a long time at the top. Uh, 15 years and with, I guess, sports changing so quickly these days. What sort of changes have you noticed over the past 15 years at the top? I guess sport in general has changed a hell of a lot in that time. You know, the understanding around diet and nutrition and the conditioning side of it is, is an ongoing science and that's really developed and I think you'll find that elite sports people these days are, are a bit more advanced than they were 15 years ago. In terms of hockey specifically, I think the game's changed an awful lot as well. Sort of the, the speed of the game's increased a hell of a lot. That's partly due to some of the rule changes that have been put in place and innovations in the game, and also the equipment, uh, especially from a goalkeeper's perspective, has, has changed. You know, now um, everyone's using carbon sticks, whereas back in the day the majority of players would use wood, and uh, the speed that the ball travels off a carbon stick has significantly increased. So. Yeah, as a goalkeeper, you um, you go from a team where one or two people could really smash the ball to a team where everyone can hit it uh, extremely hard. So that sort of required a bit of evolution in the way we goalkeep as well. You talk about evolution, but do you think ultimately it is more difficult to be a keeper now than when you first started? It can be a hard uh, position and it can be an easy position. And that, that was the same when I started and that's the same now when I finish, I think... Um, you make the right decision to put yourself in the right position and know your game and have your game really well sorted, it can be an easy game. I mean, all we have to do is quite black and white. We just have to stop the ball. Whereas um, the guys playing out in the field have a, <laughs> a few more calculations to process before making decisions. So, you know, for us, the ball goes in or the ball doesn't go in. In saying that, you have days where you think uh, it's an incredibly hard position to play. Has there been a change, I guess, to the overall tactics that teams play as well? Has has that side, the game plan side, also evolved over the years? It definitely has. Like I think the way teams press and you set a defensive screen against an opposition, that has changed a hell of a lot. And I think um, you've seen the game develop in different areas. So um, Europeans play a very uh, structured game with a high skill level and you've seen um, the Asian teams, your Indians and your Pakistans who play with a lot of flair and a lot of individual skill slide down the, the rankings over that period as the game changes and structure becomes more important. So a lot of changes and obviously you've been involved in a lot in your time with the Black Sticks. Three Olympics, two Commonwealth Games and two World Cups. What has been the highlight for you over those 15 years? I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's a funny question, and I think it's it's hard to single out any particular highlight. I, I thoroughly enjoyed every moment I played for the Black Sticks, and I've met some great people. I think um, in terms of tournaments, the tournament I've enjoyed the most would have been the Champions Trophy in 2011 in Auckland. It was a top-tier tournament on home soil, which was incredible, and probably I played one of my better tournaments there. So that sits as a really fond memory of mine. So what now for you? 
I've got to continue my career here at ANZ Bank. Yeah, they've been fantastic. And sort of now at 36, I'm not having to um, try and enter the workforce because of the flexibility I've had here. I've been able to pursue my career, but now there's probably a bit of payback for them. You know, I've got a few papers to finish for an MBA that I've been studying towards and, yeah, just spend a bit more time with my family. You still want to be involved in the sport, though? Oh, definitely. Look, I'll, I'll continue to play. I'll, I'll continue to play club hockey and I'll continue to play for Wellington as long as my um, form warrants selection. I, I certainly enjoy the game and uh, look forward to playing it. Retired Black Sticks goalkeeper Kyle Pontifex talking to Denise Garland. And this is Extra Time. Experienced netballers Maria Tutaia and Anna Harrison have been named in an expanded Silver Fern squad of 14 players that will travel to Australia next month to compete in the Constellation Cup. Tutaia has been recovering from a foot injury since the end of the Trans-Tasman Championship, while Harrison was ruled out of the Ferns on the eve of last month's quad series opener with a calf injury. The pair joined the 12 players who thumped Jamaica 3-0 in last week's Test Series and who lost the quad series to Australia earlier in the month. But coach Janine Southby told Denise Garland Tutaia and Harrison have not yet fully recovered from their injuries. Not at this point, but they are working towards that. So we've, they've got a really managed and specific program leading into Constellation Cup and it's making sure that we don't put too much loading on them early and risk them getting free into the game. So we're really clear about what they need to be doing in the lead up. And then when we get into camp as well, you know, we'll keep a really close eye on on how they're tracking and how they're coping with the load that we're putting them under. When do the team regroup and get together again? Thursday the 6th of October. So it's a very limited build-up, but will force us to be really specific and focused and, and just get straight into it. Now, is there anything specific you can tell me about what Maria and Anna really have to, to work on and, and get through before that date the group gets together? Look, I don't have their plans right in front of me at the moment, but the big thing for me is that they're just keeping and making sure that obviously they don't get re-injured, but they're also building their their fitness base and strength base back up to where we need it to be. And that's, you know, our medical and conditioning staff have been working really closely with them and together to make sure that it happens. So, you know, we're at the stage things are looking really positive and the bigger excitement for me really is around the fact that we get to take 14 players away in the group and that all 14 get to experience you know, the Australian style in a Constellation Cup and a pinnacle event, and that's certainly been a real um, aim for me for this year is to expose as many players as possible and to create that real healthy competition within the group to really drive our performance forward. Yes, obviously we were, I think, expecting 12 names and um, we've got an extra two this time around. Was there a bit of difficulty in picking this team? No, no, absolutely not. I think, you know, everyone there deserves to be there and it's more just, uh, you know, I've certainly been lobbying with Netball New Zealand all year about being able to take extended squads at this point in our campaign when we're building towards 2018 and 19, our pinnacle events then. So, you know, Netball New Zealand's seen the value in being able to do this and for Constellation Cup, you know, we will have those 14 players and, and I think that's just such a valuable experience for the whole group, particularly where we are in our cycle of, of growing towards 2018 and 19. So obviously before each test you'll be naming a squad of 12. What will you be looking for when you're naming that squad ahead of each test? Yeah, we will be naming a team of 12 for each of the tests. So, you know, looking for players performing first and foremost and doing their jobs really well on court and obviously players who are able to stick to the game plan and keep working at it and building on the connections with everyone. So, you know, 
at this point in time, I haven't got too much more to add to it than that, but certainly going to be looking towards growing all of the combinations and connections out there, and that's not just in the games, but also in our trainings as well. What goals in particular are you setting for the Ferns? Our outcome goals are really focused on winning. You know, we absolutely want to get out there and win, but we know to do that we have to perform for a full 60-plus minutes against a team like Australia who are current world champions, so... You know, for us, it's about being able to put our best netball out there for the full time we're out there on court, and, and that's the biggest focus for me. Uh, it's also, you know, building the connections. It's building our understanding of what it takes to be able to perform under pressure and win out there. So I guess perform really well under pressure and, and win would be the two big things for me out of this series. And you obviously say um, mentioned they're performing for the full 60 minutes. Does that give those 12 who have played in the Quad Series and Jamaican Series a little bit of an edge over Maria and Anna uh, with that sort of match fitness? Well, I, I guess that remains to be seen and you know we'll wait and see what happens through our build-up and over the next coming weeks but certainly those girls have performed you know pretty well over the last two series and we're really pleased with where the groups come to. That's Janine Southby. The long-time New Zealand Sports Administrator Katie Sadlier has been appointed World Rugby's first General Manager of the Women's Game. Katie Sadlier represented New Zealand at synchronised swimming at the 1984 Olympic Games and won bronze medal at the 86 Commonwealth Games. Sadlier will be responsible for the development of women's global game, increasing participation numbers, and will have input into the women's high-performance strategy. I asked her if rugby had ever been a part of her life. Well, I haven't played the game yet, but we will never say that I won't. Uh, my involvement in sport has been very generic. I mean, when I when I finished being a competitive synchronized swimmer, I, I moved very much into sports leadership and was responsible for about 27 years, I guess, of funding all the national sport organizations and sort of setting the systems and policies and procedures in place to develop sports. So from that perspective, rugby was certainly one of the sports that I worked closely with. Um, in terms of how we supported them from a central government perspective. The Olympics, must you can't have asked for much better, really, in, in a banner to promote the women's game. Yeah, no, very exciting. And, and it's in the Olympics again in, in 2020. And I guess one of my challenges is to make sure that, it's, that both sevens are in the games beyond that. Um, you know, we've got the, the 15s in Dublin next year, which is which is quite convenient because that's where I'll be based with World Rugby in, in the city of Dublin. Um, and the, 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 um, so the 15s in Dublin, and then we've got the, the 7s in San Fran that they've just announced. And so there's some, some really high-profile events that will give us the opportunity to create that visibility for the sport. Would it be fair for me to say that if uh, the 7s didn't last belong, uh, beyond two Olympics that you, know, you might be struggling? I think that that gives us enough time to get, to get the momentum behind the game. And I think what's been, really been fascinating as I've learned more about what happens in world rugby is the growth of the game in sports in countries like the U.S. I mean, it's a, it's a huge college, pro, a college scholarship program there. So, the, you know, the, the, it is very established, the women's program, not just in, in, um, in New Zealand and Australia, but in the Northern Hemisphere. It's huge. So how do you think the uh, uh, getting increased participation, uh, you know, I know this is only early days, how how are you going to do that? Well, I think that one of the the really important things to do is that the participation numbers that we see are people that are not necessarily registered. So I think one of the challenges is to, to attack it on both ends. First of all, looking at sustainable pathways for competitions, picking up what's actually happening at schools, looking at what's going on, 
um, through the universities and then the, then the provinces. Um, and then at a high level, we need to make sure that we um, develop the game, develop the role models that actually bring people through. And there's some, there's some great role models in New Zealand. And so it's a matter of actually making sure that we give them the right kind of visibility to inspire young girls to stay with the game that they might have tried at a really early age in a mixed, in a mixed environment. Do you see an issue perhaps in some parts of the world where women's equality perhaps isn't as good as it should be that, um, you know, uh, women will have the opportunity or or will that come down to world rugby to fund in some way to make sure that happens? I think that world, I mean, I guess that's the real challenge and and probably one of the reasons that they've brought um, someone like me on board is to establish partnerships across sporting codes and to look at some of those countries. I mean, I, you know, I had a really interesting project in the, develop, in the recruitment process to see how I would grow the game in Asia linked to the Rugby World Cup and the 2000 Olympics. And, and it became quite clear that you have, you, know, you have 30 unions in Asia and actually only seven or eight of them actually had women's rugby. And when you started to deal, deal um, down into the ones that didn't, you realize that in some of those countries, women aren't even allowed to play sport. So there's a whole challenge of, of organizations like World Rugby and FIFA working with the UN and some of their women's programs to use sport as a social change mechanism. Um, the IOC has a, a, a huge role to play there in their women's funding. And so to tap into some of those external funding sources and to work in cooperation with other codes and other, um, other organizations that are into women's development to get the game um, squarely as a, as, a, as a tool to make change. That's World Rugby's General Manager of the Women's Game, Katie Sadlier. And that's extra time for this week. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. Bye for now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.